This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. In Amos chapter 8, the Lord speaks to the prophet and he says this, The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, many concerned Christians today have observed that our churches in America are going through a famine of the hearing of the words of the Lord, too. But is that because we are also experiencing in our churches a famine of knowing the Bible and valuing the Bible and trusting in the sufficiency of the Bible to guide us in all things pertaining to doctrine and life? After all, that is where the church has to be grounded in the word of God. Well, we're going to talk about this today with Dr. Kenneth Burding. He is professor of New Testament at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, and is the author of many articles and books, including the one we'll be discussing today. It is called Bible Revival, Recommitting Ourselves to One Book. Dr. Birding, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Really glad to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. This is an issue that is near and dear to my heart because I think you're right. And you mentioned in the book that there is this famine, many people mention, of knowing the Bible. What do you assess is going on out there in our churches? Well, we're, we're simply not reading the Bible very much. I think that's the simplest thing to say. Uh, we don't know the Word of God probably because we don't value it enough. So that's a change, though, Janet. You know that. In the past, people valued and read the Word of God a lot more than they do right now. But yep. really, I think people are reading the Bible very, very little now. I think you're right. And I think some of the research that's been done on the subject bears that out. And yet we're living in an age where we have Bibles on our phones and Bibles on our iPads, and we have 10 <laughs> copies of different translations at home. What is yep. the disconnect there between the availability of the Bible? Is it just that familiarity is breeding laziness? Or what do you think is going on? Well, that's probably part of it. I did have a conversation with a student not so long ago that was uh, very dis- disheartening. He said, well, why, why do I need to memorize the Bible? I've got it right here on my phone. And he tapped on his cell phone. Mm-hmm. And, and I would respond to that. Well, you're not thinking about the Word of God. Your thoughts are not being formed by the Word of God. You know, you can't wake up in the middle of the night when you're having trouble sleeping and actually meditate on the Word of God in your mind because you know it. Right. So um, there is a disconnect. There's no question about it. Absolutely. So what do you think has been the effect of this loss of reading the Bible, knowing the Bible, valuing the Bible? What do you think that has wrought in us? Well, we don't, we don't interpret the Bible well, first of all, because um, one of the key contexts for interpreting the Bible well is the whole Bible context. Right. So the, uh, the Reformers actually talked a lot about about um, Scripture interpreting Scripture, but Scripture can't interpret Scripture for us if we don't know what the other Scriptures say. Yes. So that's a huge loss there. 
Oh, it is. Um, obviously a huge loss just in our spiritual lives and our growth with Christ. Well, what do you make of this excuse that people will often put forward, which is, I'm just so busy. I've got so much to do. I mean, I, I can do one, you know, a little daily bread, one verse that picks me up for the morning commute. But how right. long, you know, at what point does that become a lame excuse? Oh, it, it's definitely a lame excuse. The problem is, is the best metaphor for knowing and reading the Bible and for engagement with the Bible is like eating. It's our daily bread. If right. somebody says, I'm too busy to eat, you'd, be, um, you, you'd think that they were crazy. Basically, uh, we need to read the Word of God so that we're healthy Christians. I probably would also respond by talking about a woman named Maxine Gowing, who is in my church. Maxine is, is now an elderly woman who, um, who when she, she came to the Lord when she was 36, she was a single mom. She was working three jobs, and she was trying to raise her children on her own. But the woman who discipled her said to her, you need to read and memorize the Bible. So she did. She, she found time late at night. She would read it. She tried to memorize it. In, in the meantime, she memorized, I think, five or six books of the New Testament. She knows them by heart to this day. I look at her and I say, if anyone, uh, anyone can do it, if Maxine could do it. Yeah. And, you know, now she, she uh, is a biblically formed woman. That's great. That's what we all need. Now, when you talk about the revival of learning the word, what do you think are some steps that should be taken or some things that really ought to be done or considered along that road of revival of learning the word? In other words, how do you get Christians excited about that? You know, not necessarily just hammering people with guilt, but also saying, listen, you're a Christian. This is something you ought right. to be doing on a daily basis is learning the word yeah. of God. Well, one, one way we could do that is we could have more people who are committed to just coming alongside newer Christians and sitting with them and reading the Bible together and talking about it. That helps to motivate them. Um, another thing is that we could just help them to learn their way through the storyline of the Bible. Okay. And I don't just mean the stories, like, you know, learning the stories like you learn in a Sunday school if you're growing up in the church. I mean, actually learning where, where things belong. Like, where's the story of Saul in the Bible? Well, it's in Samuel. Where's mm-hmm. the story of the Good Samaritan? It's in, it's in Luke, not in Matthew, Mark, and John. Mm-hmm. You know, how do the sacrifices relate to the coming of Christ? Just kind of knowing their way through that. If people can learn that... Then they've got hooks to hang everything else on, and then, then they feel confidence in working their way around the Bible. Right. Let me just give a quick shout-out to BibleFluency.com. BibleFluency.com is a place that people can go, a website that I've put together that also has some physical materials, but everything there is free where people can learn through music and flashcards and, and even classes they can set up in their churches. They can learn the 400 most important events, characters, and themes in the Bible. Excellent. So that would be a way to get from here to there, that gap that is so common among people, even those who grow up in the church. Absolutely. Really, really important. Now, one of the things that you also mentioned in the book is we're needing a revival of valuing the Word. And in a way, that almost comes before the revival of learning the Word, that first you have to Mm -hmm. really understand why the Bible is so important and why it's sufficient. This is something a lot of theologians I've spoken to have said, this is what we've lost. We fought so hard for inerrancy, but what we really lost is sufficiency, that the the fact that the Bible is enough. How do we move in that direction saying to Christians just in churches and in everyday life, listen, this Bible is everything and it is trustworthy and it is sufficient for your life, for everything in your life. 
Well, you are right on. You are hitting it right on the nose, Janet. The Bible is sufficient. When we say sufficiency of Scripture, we don't mean that the Bible addresses every single question that you might have. Right. But what we mean is that it constrains us and it guides us, and everything that it actually speaks to is true. And everything that we need for life and godliness, that is everything that we need to come into salvation and to live a life that God would that would please God is actually there in the Bible. We don't have to go outside of the Bible for that. That's it. Obviously, the reasons that we're having trouble with that is because there's, um, there's all sorts of pressures in our society to think otherwise. Um, you just think of self-help uh, sort of uh, magazines or shows yeah. um, as though those are the things that are really going to help you, that are going to help move your life forward. But no, everything that you need is in the Scripture as far as getting there, let me just be honest. I think we need some repentance from having imbibed the values of the world here. We need to get back to reading the Bible. And actually, if we'll just read the Bible more, eventually the authority of Scripture will start to take its place in our lives. I really believe that. I do too, especially if you're starting out as a Christian, you're already saved. Mm-hmm. The, the Word attests, you know, with the Holy Spirit that this is the Word of God. And that, as you've mentioned, the, you know, the passages that the Scripture says, it's, you know, that it's trustworthy and that it, it is mm-hmm. good for all things of life and godliness. That's right. So when That's right. we need to delight ourselves in the Bible. Absolutely. Like we read all through the Psalms. Absolutely. What do you think is the reason why there's a perception in the church that the Bible isn't enough? I mean, what what really you've mentioned some of the things, but do you think it's also, you know, being on the Internet and seeing all these attacks on the Bible and, you know, it's a book of myths and science is better than the Bible, that sort of thing? Has that had a a widespread effect, do you think? Um, I think that's had some effect. There is a general suspicion of authoritative texts in our society anyway, not just toward the Bible. So there's, there's that general suspicion that we've learned. Everybody needs to be skeptical. Um, and so that's, that's a bit of a problem. It certainly is. It certainly is. And, it, and it's unfortunate because we as Christians ought to know better. And yet we need to repent, as Dr. Birding has said, and return to one book. Bible Revival, the name of the book. We'll come back with Dr. Kenneth Birding on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Esther is 17 years old and part of the Maasai tribe in Kenya, Africa. Like many of her age and gender, Esther was subjected to practices not taught in the Bible. One is arranged marriage, where a woman is forced to marry someone she doesn't know. The other is female circumcision, done out of superstitious belief with no known health benefit. Esther lived with bitter unforgiveness until a Bible League volunteer introduced her to Jesus. Now she's led her husband to Christ, and she's seen 60 young women come to embrace the hope of the gospel. But Bibles are scarce in this part of Kenya. So please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers in Africa and around the world for only $5. 20 Bibles costs $100. Make your most generous gift by calling 800 Yes Word. 800 Y E S W O R D. That's 800 937 9673. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com.
Over 169,000 babies saved and more than 51,000 commitments to Christ through the ministry of preborn as they celebrate 15 years of saving babies' lives. Here's Dan Steiner, president of preborn. This is a reflection of God's heart as the father to the fatherless to be able to look across America and see this tragedy, this holocaust of abortion, and know that people like you are doing something about it. It's one thing to say that we're against abortion, but it's really another to take action. Will you join Preborn in providing hope, love, free ultrasounds, and the gospel in action across America? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help to rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-BABY. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Shannon Mefford today talking about the one book that we need. We need to recommit ourselves to that one book. And of course, I'm talking about the Word of God. Dr. Kenneth Birding is joining me to discuss his book called Bible Revival. One of the things that you get into, and I'm so glad you do in this book, Dr. Birding, is the section on reviving our understanding of the Bible. And you sort of walk through how you can understand the Bible. First and foremost, you talk about context. So when somebody is coming to the Word of God, that person may not be a great exegete or very experienced. But how would you advise that person to really understand the Bible and and know what it's about and be able to follow it? Well, you're exactly right. Context is the most important thing. But when we say context, we don't we don't just mean what sometimes people think about as context. Many times in, when you talk about context, uh, people think of just the words that are around the verse you're trying to interpret. And that is the most important context. You just look at how the flow of thought is going from verse to verse. Look at what is the main idea being said there. Affirm that. Look at what are the subsidiary points as well. You also have to remember the genre, that is the literary type that's written in, because there are, there are certain differences between reading, say, the book of Revelation and reading the book of Acts. Yes. And so that makes a difference as well. There's historical context and cultural context. So it's actually, this is cross-cultural literature, and you need to remember that. It was set in a certain time, certain period. And if you can remember that, a lot of times it can help clear up some questions that people have. That's right. Now, when but you met- also, yeah. the whole Bible is also a context. So you have to be comparing, and I mentioned that just a few minutes ago, what's often referred to as the canonical context. Yes. Now, when you mention about, you know, the fact that we are reading cross-cultural literature when we are reading the Bible, practically speaking, how does that come into play? Like, for example, when Jesus talks about the mustard seed and things like that, or or agrarian references, how does that, you know, how can you tell somebody, you may run up against this, but you need to be aware that this is, you know, in the context of the time of the Israelites when Jesus was alive? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, there are certain things like that. It's not as easy for people to access it unless they get a little bit of extra education in those areas. But there are many things that can be very helpful. I'll give you one example. Um, So the world of the New Testament, the world of the Old Testament as well, um, was an honor and shame society. Hmm. So people were very concerned about honor and um, very concerned about shame. Well, that actually shows up in a lot of different texts. Just think about the parable of the of the prodigal son. And he's, uh, you know, this 
The son goes off, he's profligate, he returns to his father. The father runs out to greet him. Well, men, older men, didn't ever run. They would never have you know, stooped to that level because honor was what, what it was all about. And so it's cutting right across the cultural grain there, and it helps mm-hmm. to give liveliness to that story that you would never get any other way. That's just one of hundreds of examples I could give you. Absolutely. So in when you're speaking of context, like you just did, it's not just a, a matter of following the therefore and looking a little bit further behind in the text to see where Paul is going, for example. But it's also knowing the context of the Bible. Scripture interprets scripture, as you've mentioned. Right. How do you put that into practice? In other words, you come across a verse. It seems like it's saying something strange, but then you can think of another verse in another book that seems to contradict it. How do you resolve those sorts of problems? Well, um, what you do is you first look at the immediate context, make sure that you're reading it carefully, and then you you move out within the same author, the, you know, first the book that you're in, and then the same author and see if that same author addresses uh, this type of issue. But then you start comparing it to other passages that are on this. You know, the Bible does not con- contradict itself. If God wrote it, God in whom there is no contradiction um, is not going to contradict himself. You can be confident that you can go to other passages that will help you. Usually, you can go to a much clearer passage or other clearer passages that help to help you with the one that is not as clear, because right. not, not every scripture is equally clear as every other scripture. Right. That's a good reminder. And finally, uh, you by say... By the way, as okay. I say that, um, Janet, sorry to interrupt you, but... No problem. Um, there's also a problem with clarity of Scripture in people's minds. I actually believe the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, and I don't want anyone to misunderstand as I'm on here. The Bible is clear about everything that it affirms that is necessary for life and godliness. Right. Some things are not as clear, but everything that is absolutely necessary, the resurrection of Christ, justification by faith, um, the son, Jesus being the Son of God and God himself. Those are all crystal clear in Scripture. That's a great point. I'm glad that you brought that up. Now, you also discuss a revival of applying the Word. Of course, we're not just to read the Bible. We are to apply it to our lives. We're to obey Christ. How do we apply it as opposed to how we should not apply it? You address both of those things. Uh, well, sometimes people you know, make the mistake on the front end. They don't interpret it well. And so they don't interpret it according to the central intention of the author himself. You always want to ask, you know, when Matthew included this story about Jesus or these words, of, um, you know, coming from Jesus, what was he trying to teach? You know, what was he trying to en- 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 encourage there? And then you look for analogous cir- circumstances in our own day and age. So you don't, you don't allegorize, maybe that's a new term to some of your listeners, but you don't take something and try to make it say something outside of the text itself. So, like, um, Jesus can calm the storms of your life, you know, if you're talking about <laughs> yeah. Jesus calming the storms. That's called allegorizing, that's inappropriate. Yep. I mean, that Jesus can calm your fears is scriptural, but wrong passage. Yep, thank so you. You want to make sure that you actually get to, I mean, that passage, right. um, Jesus calming the storms is about Jesus' authority. That's right. It's not about calming the storms of your life. Well, what about Jonah? Everybody will use that from, you know, you'll hear this from time to time. What is the big fish in your life? Well, I'm not Jonah. Oh, no. It was not the same. You can't compare me to Jonah. He had a unique, <laughs> that's great, yeah, that's he had exactly a, right. that's, that's allegorizing. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and people mean well. It's not that people don't mean right. well. But the problem with that is when you begin to use those sorts of tactics, even if they're well-meaning, they guide you away from the text, don't they? That's exactly right. They undermine the authority of Scripture. Right. That's exactly right. That's a problem. And then you're not hearing an authoritative word from God. Mm. Really, you're inserting your own ideas at that point rather than submitting yourself to the Scriptures. That is submitting yourself to God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. And that's hugely problematic. It you don't want to put yourself in the place of God's authority. Amen. That's so important and ties into the revival of obeying the word that you say we need. We need to confront problems like sentimentality or this idea that I will decide what I need to do. I mean, the, the Bible is so clear how we are to obey Christ. He didn't come to wipe out the law, but to fulfill it, but not one, one jot or tittle will vanish. That we, we have lost this a little bit because we're in sort of an antinomian age where, you know, we're free in Christ, therefore Romans 6. But on the other hand, we do have to obey Christ. Christ, how do you advise people to uh, really obey the word and take the word seriously in going home and going out and obeying the Lord? Yeah, well, basically you say, whatever I read in Scripture that is confirmed, of course, by other Scriptures, so you're reading it well, you submit yourself to it. I give an example in Bible Revival of when I was raising my children. When they were little, my tendency, because I so wanted them to know Christ also, my tendency was not to push you know, I, I just sort of, hopefully they'll just get it, is what I was thinking. But actually, if you read Deuteronomy over and over again, it will talk to you about teaching your children when you get up, when you walk along the way. Right. So not pushing them. Of course, I would want to draw them in rather than pushing them into something. But I'm going to talk about the Word of God as I get up in the morning, as I walk along during the day, at dinner time, in the evenings, whenever I'm going to bring it up as just a regular way of life. I changed what I did simply because I read it in the Word of God, even though intuitively it didn't feel right to me. Hmm. That's good. That's a good example. What about speaking the Word? This is something else that you explain Hmm. is important. What do you talk about? Is it kind of dovetailing on what you just said about the Deuteronomy passage where you talk about the Word of God, speak about the Word of God? It isn't just a matter of sitting and listening to a sermon once a week. Right. That's, that's exactly right. You want to be speaking about it in your family. That's the example I just gave there. But among other believers as well, my, uh, my teaching colleague, Dr. Joanne Jung, she actually sort of revived an old Puritan practice. She's been talking about it called conference. Hmm. And we mean something different when we say conference. But the Puritans used to you know, set times to get together and just sit down and talk about the Word of God. Neat. And... Um, and it's really, really exciting when you start to think about it. So um, we should be doing that as well. Call up someone and say, hey, how would you like to get together? And let's just discuss a biblical theme like the glory of God or the covenants of the Bible. Right. Or um, let's take a particular passage and read it together and just talk about it. You know, we can do it in small groups or we can do it just one-on-one. I just, I love that idea. I think we should be talking more and more. Actually, Janet, if you want to try to um, gauge the health of a church, probably to the degree that we're willing to have spiritual conversations, obviously not just talking about what we've read in the Word of God, but things like, I've been praying for you in this way, how has God been working in your life? But to the degree that those come out in regular conversation, and including uh, what we've read in the scriptures, probably we can gauge the health of a church much better. Definitely. Uh, in that way, we can tell whether or not we're a spiritually minded church or not. 
Well, that's right, because normally what you're thinking about will come out of your mouth, right? So if you don't have it, you're not thinking about the Word of God, you haven't been studying it or reading it, you're probably a lot less likely to be discussing it with the people you run into at church. That's right. And And Romans 8 says to, you know, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Yes, that is absolutely right. And you mentioned this before, but we have to squeeze this in. The importance of memorizing the Bible really cannot be overstated. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The problem is, is that um, a lot of people just have painful memories of memorizing in school. So I've actually laid out an appendix in the back, a very simple way to memorize large chunks of the Bible. It's, it's not difficult. Um, basically, it just is you read a scripture passage over and over again. So the book of Philippians will take you maybe 12 minutes to read it out loud. Yeah. Very good. Well, you can read the book, Bible Revival. Great book, Dr. Kenneth Birding, spending time with us. Thank you, Dr. Birding. God bless, and we'll be right back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today. It is really sobering to consider the words of the Lord in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, where he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This not only flies in the face of universalism, but it emphasizes that the road to eternal salvation is not an easy route that many people will follow. Just the opposite, in fact. And again, that is a very scary thing to consider. But in light of that, what would you say if somebody asked you, can a homosexual be a Christian? Now, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that no unrepentant sinner of any kind, no one who practices sin, will inherit the kingdom of God. But my next guest faced a question much like that recently, and he is here to tell us how he answered it with the Word of God. Dr. Everett Piper, wonderful to welcome you back. How are you today? Janet, how are you? Just fine. Great to have you here. So I understand you were at a church camp recently, and somebody asked you a question about homosexuality and self Salvation. Tell us what happened here. I was sitting at a campfire at a church camp that uh, I've raised my boys at uh, for the last uh, 25 years or so out here in Barker, New York. Uh, around the campfire one evening, out of the blue, uh, with uh, totally disconnected to the conversation, I was asked by somebody, uh, are you saying that a homosexual or a transgender person cannot be a Christian? My answer was pretty brief, and I said, well, I think the issue is repentance. If a homosexual or a transgender person or any other individual who is celebrating their sin rather than confessing their sin claims to be a Christian, I would argue it's unbiblical. It's repentance and confession of sin that leads you to be a Christian. Uh, It's not the celebration or the uh, hyphenating your uh, Christianity by virtue of your sin or your inclination that would make you one. Um, So I said, I think the issue is repentance. And then I said, let me ask you a question. Can you show me any Bible verse from Genesis 1 through the end of Revelation that says anything positive about homosexuality? 
and there was a long pause, and the person got up and stormed off and walked away. Hmm. She didn't want to speak anymore. She was so conflicted. She was so upset by that question. Now, Janet, what I would say, and had I had the opportunity to talk to this person further, there are numerous, numerous Bible verses. People claim, well, Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality, which is not true. Read Revelation. Also, if we believe in the Trinity, we've got to acknowledge that Jesus is God. The Word made flesh and dwelling among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If we believe in the Trinity, there isn't one uh, jot or tittle. There isn't one letter, there isn't one sentence in all of Scripture from Genesis to, the Reve- to Revelation that isn't inspired by Jesus, because Jesus is God. Jesus addresses this issue prolifically yes. throughout Scripture. There's also repeated reference in the New Testament. I went through all the epistles and Revelation, and I cited every Bible verse that refers to the issue of sexual morality and the necessity of being sexually pure if you're going to be within the kingdom, within the family of God, if you're going to claim to be a Christian. And the verses are replete. They're in Romans. They're in First Corinthians. They're in Second Corinthians. They are in Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and Thessalonians and First and Second Timothy and Titus and Hebrews and James and Peter, First and Second Peter and John and Jude and Revelation. There are tons of verses that tell us that you must confess your sins, you can't walk in sensuality, you cannot continue to define yourself by your sexual appetites if you want to be part of the family of God, if you want to claim the banner of Christian. So the answer is no. No one who celebrates his sin rather than confessing it is a Christian. No one who defines herself by her passions or desires is part of the of the family of God. They can't claim to be a Christian. No one who claims their identity is in their libido rather than their Lord is a Christian. And no one who claims to be transgendered rather than transformed is a Christian. I would argue this, and I'll take a breath here, Janet. No, I love no it. One who argues, <laughs> no one that argues that they were born that way rather than shouting from the rooftops that they are born again is a Christian. It doesn't matter what my opinion is or what your opinion is of this issue. What matters is what does God's Word say? You don't get to make up, and I don't get to make up my own Christianity. The the Bible defines it. You don't, and I don't. Oh, that's so well said, and there's so many directions I want to go on this. But when you're talking about all the verses, and I know that you did an extensive post on Facebook, and you went into all of the different verses in Scripture that back up what you're saying, Romans 1 is kind of the go-to passage, I know, for a lot of us, or at least the first stop when we start to talk about the issue of homosexuality where, you know, they became futile in their thinking. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's where it starts, isn't it? Because that, I think many times when you have people asking questions of that sort, they're just saying, do you accept me as I am or don't you? That seems to be sometimes a lot of the underlying emotion behind that kind of a question. Are you saying I'm not good enough to go to heaven? Well, nobody is good enough to go to heaven. But what is your thought on this issue of the wrath of God and how those who deny the truth and deny God as he has revealed himself end up suppressing the truth and unrighteousness? And that is the root and the crux of the issue fundamentally. Well, let's go to Second Thessalonians. It says this, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destructions because they refused to 
to love the truth and so be saved. Yes. So it seems pretty clear that if we are not going to repent of those things that the Bible, not you, not me, not culture, not even some churches, uh, says is right or wrong, because I don't really care what you or I or others say is right or wrong. We have to go to Scripture, the Word of God. And Scripture is clear that sexual purity and sexual morality are among the many sins, not their only sins, the many sins that will keep us from heaven if we don't repent and confess of those sins, become born again, die to self, become a new creation in Christ, stop embracing the old. And this is what I, I have the difficulty with this gay Christianity movement. When we hyphenate our Christianity by virtue of the sins or proclivities or desires or the libido that we bring to the table, that means we haven't died to self. We're actually celebrating the sins rather than confessing of the sins. Rather than putting them behind us, we're making them part of us. And that is not what the Bible tells us about becoming a Christian. You are to die to self. Uh, become a new creation in Christ, be born again, not sit around and claim you were born that way. Yes, exactly right. And we wouldn't do that with any other sin. If we were to say, for if I came to you, for example, and say, are you saying that I can't be a thief and a Christian at the same time? I mean, no one would dare ask you that question. So what's the difference? Why is there a special category for homosexual, quote unquote, identity and it's over and you know over and above every other sin that you would never pose as some form of your identity. I'm a thief. I just you know I'm a Christian and a thief, and I'm a uh, you know I'm a liar and a Christian. No one would do that with other sins. So how have we created this opening for people to somehow think you could simultaneously hold on to your sin and Jesus at the same time? Well, we've, we've, we have imbibed the Kool-Aid, the cultural Kool-Aid of identity equals inclinations. We've allowed that lie to not, even, not only get into our culture, but to get into our churches, yep. so that now we dumb down the definition of what it means to be a human being to nothing but the sum total of what you're inclined to do. Hmm. But that's who you are. And that's a lie. We are the Omago Day. We're not the Imago dog. We're human beings made in the image of God. We have moral understanding and moral responsibility and culpability. We're not an animal that just ruts around and follows his appetite and has no moral consequences for doing so. The irony here is the conservative Christian biblical definition of humanity actually elevates people to a higher standard rather than diminishing them to this lesser standard. And you're right. If I were to go around and saying, I'm hyphenate my Christianity by saying I'm an adulterous Christian, or I'm a polyamorous Christian, or I'm a player Christian, you would rightly raise an eyebrow and suggest that's kind of creepy. That makes no sense. <laughs> right. Correct? Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, I want to come back. We're going to go to a very quick break. We'll be back with Dr. Everett Piper, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. Stay with us.
The U.N. has called what's happening in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. COVID-19, political upheaval, a crumbling economy, and two million refugees, children and their families, living in poverty and despair. But in the middle of it all, God is at work. More Muslim-cultured people than ever before are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And through your generous support, Heart for Lebanon is being used to bring these hurting people from despair to hope. A single gift of $116 helps bring a child and their family survival essentials and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. $348 cares for this family for an entire year. We have a goal to take over 50 families off a waiting list that desperately need our help. So we're hoping you'll be as generous as you can when you call 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today. Thank you for being with us. And it's always great to have with us Dr. Everett Piper, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. We're talking about what the word of God has to say to the person who might ask the question, are you saying that you can't be a homosexual and a Christian? The answer is no, you can't. And it has to do with repenting of your sin. It's not the fact that you are a sinner. We're all sinners. But to repent of your sin and to confess Christ is necessary. It's not possible. And you can see this from the text of scripture, as you've mentioned, Dr. Piper, It is not possible to simultaneously hang on to your lusts and justify them in any sense and also claim Jesus Christ. I mean, I think of what Paul said in Romans chapter six, what shall we say that are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? But isn't this coming down, Dr. Piper, to what is a sin anymore? I mean, this was the famous question asked years ago, whatever became of sin. What did become of sin with this LGBT movement? Well, we've stopped allowing the Bible to define what is right and wrong, good and evil, bitter and sweet. And doesn't Isaiah tell us, woe unto him who starts reversing those definitions. We've become, as God, we think we can define what's good and evil. We We eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what was that? Why was that a sin? It's because in doing so, we said we don't need God any longer to tell us anything. God, you don't need to tell us what's good or evil any longer. We know. We know in and of ourselves. We are as gods, 
and we can define this ourselves, thank, thank you. God be gone. And that's exactly what's taking place in culture right now, where we think we can start redefining these sins or diminishing these sins to nothing but uh, kind of a, uh, a complementary uh, identity. And as you know, we've covered this Revoice conference in St. Louis, where they actually celebrate the queer a treasure and glory that the, the transgender community will bring into the new Jerusalem <sighs> in the end times. And that's close to a quote. You know what? I'm coming close yeah. to a quote of one of the workshops. Yep. That is not... That is not confessing sin. That is celebrating it and claiming that it brings glory and treasure to the new Jerusalem at the end of time. And that is just wrong. Oh, it's so wrong. And there seems to be no fear of God before their eyes. Whenever you go to any of these people tied up with that conference and we say, how do you justify terms like sexual minorities from the word of God? It's crickets. They don't even attempt to find any Bible verse. But if you don't go to the word of God, how do you know you're within the realm of Christianity at all? You have to have some true north. Yeah. I mean, you can't can't just make it up as you go. But unfortunately, for some of these people, that doesn't bother them that much. And that was my point to this young lady that asked me this question at the church camp. I, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter whether I think a person is a Christian or not. What matters is what does the Bible say? And the Bible is clear. Colossians says, see to it that no one takes you captive to, by philosophy and empty deceit. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Put off the old self with its practices and put on a new self. Now, how can the organizers of Revoice, how can the advocates of gay Christianity, quote-unquote, which I consider to be an oxymoron, yep. deal with this passage from Colossians? How can they respond to it? You're right. It's crickets. They don't. They ignore it and they move on. They try to reconstruct a new form of Christianity and ignore these passages. Right. And at the same time, try to say, well, we're on the moral high ground because we're talking about being gay, but never acting on it. And I was talking to somebody over the weekend. I said, what other sin around which you would gather for a conference and say, All right, let's go back to stealing. I, I'm a thief in my heart. I really want to steal stuff. But thus far, I haven't done it. Why don't we gather together all the would-be thieves and congratulate ourselves? and pass ourselves, pat ourselves on our back for our sacrifice, for living for Christ, for not acting on our thievery. What they're missing is the repentance. They talk about, well, we're celibate, but then they do things like talking about redeeming queer culture. It's double-mindedness, and it's so deceptive, and it's influencing so many people, Dr. Piper. That's the real tragedy of it. And it, it ignores the fact that the desire is sinful. People, yes, right. and I know there's debate on that, but I hold that Jesus himself taught us that the thought, the desire, the lust, if you will, of the heart is equal to the adulterous action in and of itself. Right. So if you hold a desire that is unhealthy, unholy, and you refuse to set it aside, die to self, and put that behind you rather than celebrating it as part of you, how can you claim to be honoring the words of Jesus who told us that the fixation on the thought is equal to the sinful act itself. Right. That's an excellent point. I think, too, of the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is saying, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but I didn't mean the people of this world. I was talking about people inside the church. He said, you must not associate with anybody who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or a slanderer, etc., etc. Don't even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And he finally says, 
says, God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. Uh, it's interesting to me at a time when you have churches saying we should embrace the sexually immoral because they're a special class of sinner. And the Bible says the exact opposite. I, I would love to see what the revoice crowd would do with First Corinthians chapter 5 because it doesn't bode well for them, really. And it goes on and on. And if we want to get beyond what they will claim is Paul's, St. Paul's homophobia, and I get so sick of hearing that, yes. just because you disagree with somebody doesn't mean you're afraid of them. I hate these phobia arguments. Yeah. Let's go to St. Peter. Let's move beyond Paul. Peter tells us, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring destructive heresy, yes. and many will follow their sensuality, and they will exploit you with false words. But these, like irrational creatures of instinct. They blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant, and they will be destroyed. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. I mean, Peter goes on, and he says, they promise freedom. Now, this is very prophetic, I would argue, from Peter. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves to correct to corruption. Yeah. They scoff in the last, last days, uh, and they elevate their own desires. This is what Peter tells us, and then Jesus covers it in Revelation to the church of Thyatira and Pergamum, and then in the closing verses of Revelation in, in, in chapter 22, he covers it again. Yeah. Oh, great passages. And it's all right there in black and white. You can read it for yourself and you can either reject it or you can accept it, but you can't deny that it's there in the pages of Holy Scripture. I'm wondering, Dr. Piper, how you think ultimately conservative evangelicals will deal with this issue, because it's obvious that we have a tsunami coming right at us. I think it's only going to get worse from here. You have gay activists from without and you also have gay activists inside the church who are fundamentally trying to transform the church and create it in its own image. It's incredible that we're at this point, but how do you see evangelicals responding in the long run? Do you think we will stand up with the word of God and defend the word of God, or do you think there will be more capitulation? How do you, what do you see the temperature is on this issue? Well, I think I said it on one of your shows earlier, Janet, I was invited to be on a panel at the National Religious Broadcasters Association conference this last spring. On that panel was Eric Metaxas, Jim Daly, Larry Elder, and then Dennis Prager. And the question before the panel was, is Christianity under attack? All of the panelists said, well, of course it is, and gave their anecdotes to, 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 to justify their answer. My answer was slightly a little different. I said, of course Christianity is under attack, but not so much from culture as it is from the church. I would argue that our Christianity, the biblical definition of what it means to be an obedient follower of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, is under attack from the Church with a capital C, as much, if not more so, from the culture. So yes, we do know the end of the story. We know the Church will prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is a remnant that will stand true to the inerrancy of the Word. But I also believe that we see all of these warnings, from Jude to Revelation to Peter and Paul and all the way back to Genesis 1, that there is going to be a falling away because people will declare themselves to be of God. And I think even the evangelical church is falling prey to that temptation and that sin right now. I do, too. And I wish we had more time to get into this. But I think part of the problem is in the last several years, we have subtly allowed antinomianism to take root in a lot of evangelical churches. Well, I'm saved by grace, so then I can go do what I want. Well, if you open up that Pandora's box, then pretty soon you can't say anything about anybody else needing to obey the Lord because you don't think you need to. So we fall into these theological traps and we don't see that that can lead to something worse down the road. You can do no measuring without a measuring rod 
outside of those things being measured. C.S. Lewis, if the measuring rod is not the inerrancy of the Word from Genesis 1 through the end of Revelation, if all of the Word is not inspired by God and dictated to us in terms of Him giving us His revelation in all of Scripture, if we start cherry-picking our verses as to what we want to live by and what we don't, then we are declaring ourselves to be that measuring rod rather than the inerrancy of the Word. And it's at that time the church falters and culture loses as the result. You're so right about that. Well, you can check out Dr. Everett Piper on his Facebook page. Great stuff. And also Not a Daycare is his book as well as his columns over at the Washington Times. Dr. Piper, we really appreciate your coming back. I know how busy you are, but thank you so much for being here and for doing what you do. Blessings, Janet. All right. God bless you, too. Thanks for being with us here on Janet Mefford Today. God bless you, and we will see you next time. This hour of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you in part by Heart for Lebanon. Call 888-247-5499 to give desperate people help and the hope of the gospel. 888-247-5499.